Section 13 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Blueskin the Pirate. Part 2. Subchapter 6. Within a week, Levi West had pretty well established himself among his old friends and acquaintances, though upon a different footing from that of nine years before, for this was a very different Levi from that other. Nevertheless, he was none the less popular in the bar-room of the tavern and at the country store, where he was always the center of a group of loungers. His nine years seemed to have been crowded full of the wildest of wild adventures and happenings, as well by land as by sea, and, given an appreciative audience, he would reel off his yarns by the hour, in a reckless, devil-may-care fashion that set agape even old sea-dogs who had sailed the western ocean since boyhood. Then he seemed always to have plenty of money, and he loved to spend it at the tavern taproom, with a lavishness that was at once the wonder and admiration of gossips. At that time, as was said, Blueskin was the one engrossing topic of talk, and it added not a little to Levi's prestige when it was found that he had actually often seen that bloody devilish pirate with his own eyes. A great heavy burly fellow, Levi said he was, with a beard as black as a hat, a devil with his sword and pistol afloat, but not so black as he was painted when ashore. He told of many adventures in which Blueskin figured and was then always listened to with more than usual gaping interest. As for Blueskin, the quiet way in which the pirates conducted themselves at Indian River almost made the loose folk forget what he could do when the occasion called. They almost ceased to remember that poor shattered schooner that had crawled with its ghastly dead and groaning wounded into the harbor a couple of weeks since. But if for a while they forgot who or what Blueskin was, it was not for long. One day a bark from Bristol, bound for Cuba, and laden with a valuable cargo of cloth stuffs and silks, put into Loose Harbor to take in water. The captain himself came ashore and was at the tavern for two or three hours. It happened that Levi was there and that the talk was of Blueskin. The English captain, a grizzled old sea-dog, listened to Levi's yarns with not a little contempt. He had, he said, sailed in the China Sea and the Indian Ocean too long to be afraid of any hog-eating Yankee pirate such as this blueskin. A junk full of coolies armed with stink-pots was something to speak of, but who ever heard of the likes of blueskin falling afoul of anything more than a Spanish canoe or a Yankee coaster? Levi grinned. All the same, my hearty, said he, if I was you, I'd give Blueskin a wide berth. I hear that he's cleaned the vessel that was careened a while ago, and maybe he'll give you a little trouble if you come too nigh him. To this the Englishman only answered that Blueskin might be blank, and that the next afternoon, wind and weather permitting, he intended to heave anchor and run out to sea. Levi laughed again. I wish I might be here to see what'll happen, said he. "'but I'm going up the river to-night to see a gal, "'and maybe won't be back again for three or four days.' "'The next afternoon the English bark set sail as the captain promised, "'and that night Lou's town was awake until almost morning, "'gazing at a broad red glare that lighted up the sky "'away toward the southeast. 
Two days afterward a negro oysterman came up from Indian River with news that the pirates were lying off the inlet, bringing ashore bales of goods from their larger vessel and piling the same upon the beach under tarpaulins. He said that it was known down at Indian River that Blueskin had fallen afoul of an English bark, had burned her, and had murdered the captain and all but three of the crew who had joined with the pirates. The excitement over this terrible happening had only begun to subside when another occurred to cap it. One afternoon a ship's boat, in which were five men and two women, came rowing into Lewes Harbor. It was the longboat of the Charleston Packet, bound for New York, and was commanded by the first mate. The packet had been attacked and captured by the pirates about ten leagues south by east of Cape Henlopen. The pirates had come aboard of them at night, and no resistance had been offered. Perhaps it was this circumstance that saved the lives of all, for no murder or violence had been done. Nevertheless, officers, passengers, and crew had been stripped of everything of value and set adrift in the boats, and the ship herself had been burned. The longboat had become separated from the others during the night, and had sighted Henlopen a little after sunrise. It might be here said that Squire Hall made out a report of these two occurrences, and sent it up to Philadelphia by the mate of the packet. But for some reason it was nearly four weeks before a sloop of war was sent around from New York. In the meanwhile, the pirates had disposed of the booty stored under the tarpaulins on the beach at Indian River Inlet, shipping some of it away in two small sloops, and sending the rest by wagons somewhere up the country. Subchapter 7 Levi had told the English captain that he was going up country to visit one of his lady friends. He was gone nearly two weeks. Then once more he appeared as suddenly, as unexpectedly, as he had done when he first returned to Lewes. Hiram was sitting at supper when the door opened and Levi walked in, hanging up his hat behind the door as unconcernedly as though he had only been gone an hour. He was in an ugly, lowering humor, and sat himself down at the table without uttering a word, resting his chin upon his clenched fist, and glowering fixedly at the corn-cake, while Dinah fetched him a plate and knife and fork. His coming seemed to have taken away all of Hiram's appetite. He pushed away his plate and sat staring at his stepbrother, who presently fell to at the bacon and eggs like a famished wolf. Not a word was said until Levi had ended his meal and filled his pipe. "'Looky, Hiram,' said he, as he stooped over the fire and raked out a hot coal. "'Looky, Hiram, I've been to Philadelphia, do you see?' a settlin' up that trouble I told you about when I first came home. Do you understand? Do you remember? Do you get it through your skull? He looked around over his shoulder, waiting as though for an answer, but getting none, he continued. I expect two gentlemen here from Philadelphia tonight. They're friends of mine, and are coming to talk over the business. And ye needn't stay at home, high. You can go out somewhere, do you understand? And then he added with a grin, Ye can go see Sally. Hiram pushed back his chair and arose. He leaned with his back against the side of the fireplace. "'I'll stay at home,' said he presently. "'But I don't want you to stay at home, High,' said Levi. "'We'll have to talk business, and I want you to go.' "'I'll stay at home,' said Hiram again. Levi's brow grew as black as thunder. He ground his teeth together, and for a moment or two it seemed as though an explosion was coming. But he swallowed his passion with a gulp. "'You're a pig-headed, half-witted fool,' said he. Hiram never so much as moved his eyes. "'As for you,' said Levi, whirling round upon Dinah, who was clearing the table, 
and glorying bayfully upon the old negress, you put them things down and get out of here. Don't you come nigh this kitchen again till I tell ye to. If I catch you prying around, may I be blank, eyes and liver, if I don't cut your heart out. In about half an hour Levi's friends came. The first a little, thin, wizened man, with a very foreign look. He was dressed in a rusty black suit, and wore grey yarn stockings and shoes with brass buckles. The other was also plainly a foreigner. He was dressed in sailor fashion, with petticoat breeches of duck, a heavy pea-jacket, and thick boots, reaching to the knees. He wore a red sash tied around his waist, and once, as he pushed back his coat, Hiram saw the glitter of a pistol-butt. He was a powerful, thick-set man, low-browed and bull-necked, his cheek and chin and throat closely covered with a stubble of blue-black beard. He wore a red kerchief tied around his head, and over it a cocked hat, edged with tarnished gilt braid. Levi himself opened the door to them. He exchanged a few words outside with his visitors, in a foreign language of which Hiram understood nothing. Neither of the two strangers spoke a word to Hiram. The little man shot him a sharp look out of the corners of his eyes, and the burly ruffian scowled blackly at him, but beyond that neither vouchsafed him any regard. Levi drew to the shutters, shut the bolt in the outer door, and tilted a chair against the latch of the one that led from the kitchen into the adjoining room. Then the three worthies seated themselves at the table, which Dinah had half cleared of the supper china, and were presently deeply engrossed over a packet of papers which the big burly man had brought with him in the pocket of his pea-jacket. The confabulation was conducted throughout in the same foreign language which Levi had used when first speaking to them, a language quite unintelligible to Hiram's ears. Now and then the murmur of talk would rise loud and harsh over some disputed point, now and then it would sink away to whispers. Twice the tall clock in the corner whirred and sharply struck the hour, but throughout the whole long consultation Hiram stood silent, motionless as a stock, his eyes fixed almost unwinkingly upon the three heads grouped close together around the dim, flickering light of the candle and the papers scattered upon the table. Suddenly the talk came to an end, the three heads separated, and the three chairs were pushed back, grating harshly. Levi rose, went to the closet, and brought thence a bottle of Hiram's apple brandy, as coolly as though it belonged to himself. He set three tumblers and a crock of water upon the table, and each helped himself liberally. As the two visitors departed down the road, Levi stood for a while at the open door, looking after the dusky figures until they were swallowed in the darkness. Then he turned, came in, shut the door, shuddered, took a final dose of the apple brandy, and went to bed without, since his first suppressed explosion, having said a single word to Hiram. Hiram, left alone, stood for a while, silent, motionless as ever. Then he looked slowly about him, gave a shake of the shoulders as though to arouse himself, and taking the candle, left the room, shutting the door noiselessly behind him. Subchapter 8 This time of Levi West's unwelcome visitation was indeed a time of bitter trouble and tribulation to poor Hiram White. Money was of very different value in those days than it is now, and five hundred pounds was in its way a good round lump. In Sussex County it was almost a fortune. It was a desperate struggle for Hiram to raise the amount of his father's bequest to his stepbrother. Squire Hall, as may have been gathered, had a very warm and friendly feeling for Hiram believing in him when all others disbelieved. 
Nevertheless, in the matter of money, the old man was as hard and as cold as adamant. He would, he said, do all he could to help Hiram, but that five hundred pounds must and should be raised. Hiram must release his security bond. He would loan him, he said, three hundred pounds, taking a mortgage upon the mill. He would have lent him four hundred, but that there was already a first mortgage of one hundred pounds upon it, and he would not dare to put more than three hundred more atop of that. Hiram had a considerable quantity of wheat, which he had bought upon speculation, and which was then lying idle in a Philadelphia storehouse. This he had sold at public sale, and at a very great sacrifice. He realized barely one hundred pounds upon it. The financial horizon looked very black to him. Nevertheless, Levi's five hundred pounds was raised, and paid into Squire Hall's hands, and Squire Hall released Hiram's bond. The business was finally closed on one cold gray afternoon in the early part of December. As Hiram tore his bond across, and then tore it across again and again, Squire Hall pushed back the papers upon his desk, and cocked his feet upon its slanting top. "'Hiram,' said he abruptly, "'Hiram, do you know that Levi West is forever hanging around Billy Martin's house, after that pretty daughter of his?' So long a space of silence followed the speech, that the squire began to think that Hiram might not have heard him. But Hiram had heard. "'No,' said he, "'I didn't know it.' "'Well, he is,' said Squire Hall. "'It's the talk of the whole neighborhood. "'The talk's pretty bad, too. "'Do ye know that they say that she was away from home three days last week? "'Nobody knew where. "'The fellows turned her head with his sailor's yarns and his traveller's lies.' "'Hiram said not a word.' but he sat looking at the other in stolid silence. "'That stepbrother of yours,' continued the old squire presently, "'is a rascal. He is a rascal, Hiram, and I misdoubt he's something worse. I hear he's been seen in some queer places and with queer company of late.' He stopped again, and still Hiram said nothing. "'And looky, Hiram,' the old man resumed, suddenly, "'I do hear that you be courting the girl, too. Is that so?' "'Yes,' said Hiram. I'm courting her, too. Tut, tut, said the squire. That's a pity, Hiram. I'm afraid your cakes are dough. After he had left the squire's office, Hiram stood for a while in the street, bareheaded, his hat in his hand, staring unwinkingly down at the ground at his feet, with stupidly drooling lips and lackluster eyes. Presently he raised his hand and began slowly smoothing down the sandy shock of hair upon his forehead. At last he aroused himself with a shake, looked dully up and down the street, and then, putting on his hat, turned and walked slowly and heavily away. The early dusk of the cloudy winter evening was settling fast, for the sky was leaden and threatening. At the outskirts of the town Hiram stopped again and again stood for a while in brooding thought. Then finally he turned slowly, not the way that led homeward, but taking the road that led between the bare and withered fields and crooked fences toward Billy Martin's. It would be hard to say just what it was that led Hiram to seek Billy Martin's house at that time of day, whether it was fate or ill fortune. He could not have chosen a more opportune time to confirm his own undoing. What he saw was the very worst that his heart feared. Along the road, at a little distance from the house, was a mock orange hedge, now bare, naked, leafless. As Hiram drew near, he heard footsteps approaching and low voices. He drew back into the fence corner, and there stood, 
half sheltered by the stark network of twigs. Two figures passed slowly along the gray of the roadway in the glooming. One was his stepbrother, the other was Sally Martin. Levi's arm was around her, he was whispering into her ear, and her head rested upon his shoulder. Hiram stood as still, as breathless, as cold as ice. They stopped upon the side of the road just beyond where he stood. Hiram's eyes never left them. There, for some time, they talked together in low voices, their words now and then reaching the ears of that silent, breathless listener. Suddenly there came the clattering of an opening door, and then Betty Martin's voice broke the silence, harshly, shrilly. "'Sal! Sal! Sally Martin! You, Sally Martin! Come in here! Where be ye?' The girl flung her arms around Levi's neck, and their lips met in one quick kiss. The next moment she was gone flying swiftly, silently, down the road past where Hiram stood, stooping as she ran. Levi stood looking after her until she was gone, then he turned and walked away whistling. His whistling died shrilly into silence in the wintry distance, and then at last Hiram came stumbling out from the hedge. His face had never looked before as it looked then. Subchapter 9 Hiram was standing in front of the fire with his hands clasped behind his back. He had not touched the supper on the table. Levi was eating with an appetite. Suddenly he looked over his plate at his stepbrother. "'How about that five hundred pounds, Hiram?' said he. "'I gave ye a month to raise it, and the month ain't quite up yet, but I'm going to leave this here place day after tomorrow, by next day at the furthest, and I want the money that's mine. I paid it to Squire Hall today, and he has it for ye,' said Hiram dully. Levi laid down his knife and fork with a clatter. "'Squire Hall,' said he, "'what's Squire Hall got to do with it? "'Squire Hall didn't have the use of that money. "'It was you had it, and you have got to pay it back to me. "'And if you don't do it, by gee, I'll have the law on you, sure as you're born.' "'Squire Hall's trustee. "'I ain't your trustee,' said Hiram, in the same dull voice. "'I don't know nothing about trustees,' said Levi, "'or anything about lawyer business either.' What I want to know is, are you going to pay me my money or no? No, said Hiram. I ain't. Squire Hall pay ye. You go to him. Levi West's face grew purple-red. He pushed back, his chair grating harshly. You bloody land pirate, he said, grinding his teeth together. I see through your tricks. You're up to cheating me out of my money. You know very well that Squire Hall is down on me, hard and bitter, writing his blank reports to Philadelphia, and doing all he can to stir up everybody agin me and to bring the blue jackets down on me. I see through your tricks as clear as glass, but ye shan't trick me. I'll have my money if there's law in the land. Ye bloody, unnatural thief ye, who'd go again your dead father's will. Then, if the roof had fallen in upon him, Levi West could not have been more amazed. Hiram suddenly strode forward, and leaning half across the table with his fists clenched, fairly glared into Levi's eyes. His face, dull, stupid, wooden, was now fairly convulsed with passion. The great veins stood out upon his temples like knotted whipcords, and when he spoke his voice was more a breathless snarl than the voice of a Christian man. "'Ye'll have the law, will ye?' said he. "'Ye'll have the law, will ye?' You're afeard to go to law, Levi West. You try the law, and see how ye like it. Who are ye to call me thief, ye bloody murderin' villain ye? 
"'You're the thief, Levi West. "'You come here and stole my daddy from me, ye did. "'You make me ruin myself to pay outer to been mine. "'Then ye, ye steal the gal I was courtin' to boot.' "'He stopped, and his lips writhed for words to say. "'I know ye,' said he, grinding his teeth. "'I know ye, and only for what my daddy made me promise, "'I'd a had you up to the magistrates before this.' "'Then, pointing with quivering finger,' There's the door. You see it. Go out that there door, and don't never come into it again. If ye do, or if ye ever come where I can lay eyes upon ye again. By the holy holy, I'll hail ye up to the squire's office, and tell all I know and all I've seen. Oh, I'll give ye your belly full of law, if ye want the law. Get out of the house, I say. As Hiram spoke, Levi seemed to shrink together. His face changed from its copper color to a dull waxy yellow. When the other ended, he answered never a word. But he pushed back his chair, rose, put on his hat, and, with a furtive sidelong look, left the house, without stopping to finish the supper which he had begun. He never entered Hiram White's door again. Subchapter 10 Hiram had driven out the evil spirit from his home, but the mischief that it had brewed was done and could not be undone. The next day it was known that Sally Martin had run away from home, and that she had run away with Levi West. Old Billy Martin had been in town in the morning with his rifle, hunting for Levi, and threatening if he caught him to have his life for leading his daughter astray. And, as the evil spirit had left Hiram's house, so had another and a greater evil spirit quitted its harborage. It was heard from Indian River in a few days more that Blueskin had quitted the inlet and had sailed away to the southeast, and it was reported, by those who seemed to know, that he had finally quitted those parts. It was well for himself that Blueskin left when he did, for not three days after he sailed away, the Scorpion Sloop of War dropped anchor in Lou's Harbor. The New York agent of the unfortunate packet and a government commissioner had also come aboard the Scorpion. Without loss of time, the officer in command instituted a keen and searching examination that brought to light some singularly curious facts. It was found that a very friendly understanding must have existed for some time between the pirates and the people of Indian River, for, in the houses throughout that section, many things, some of considerable value, that had been taken by the pirates from the packet, were discovered and seized by the commissioner valuables of a suspicious nature that had found way even into the houses of Luz itself. The whole neighborhood seemed to have become more or less tainted by the presence of the pirates. Even poor Hiram White did not escape the suspicions of having had dealings with them. Of course, the examiners were not slow in discovering that Levi West had been deeply concerned with Blueskin's doings. Old Dinah and Black Bob were examined, and not only did the story of Levi's two visitors come to light, but also the fact that Hiram was present, and with them while they were in the house, disposing of the captured goods to their agent. Of all that he had endured, nothing seemed to cut poor Hiram so deeply and keenly as these unjust suspicions. They seemed to bring the last bitter pang, hardest of all to bear. Levi had taken from him his father's love. He had driven him, if not to ruin, at least perilously close to it, he had run away with the girl he loved, and now, through him, even Hiram's good name was gone. Neither did the suspicions against him remain passive. They became active. Goldsmith's bills, to the amount of several thousand pounds, 
had been taken in the packet, and Hiram was examined with an almost inquisitorial closeness and strictness as to whether he had or had not knowledge of their whereabouts. Under his accumulated misfortunes, he grew not only more dull, more taciturn than ever, but gloomy, moody, brooding as well. For hours he would sit staring straight before him into the fire, without moving so much as a hair. One night, it was a bitterly cold night in February, with three inches of dry and gritty snow upon the ground, when Hiram sat thus brooding, there came of a sudden a soft tap upon the door. Low and hesitating as it was, Hiram started violently at the sound. He sat for a while, looking from right to left. Then suddenly pushing back his chair, he arose, strode to the door, and flung it wide open. It was Sally Martin. Hiram stood for a while, staring blankly at her. It was she who first spoke. "'Won't you let me come in, Hi?' said she. "'I'm nigh starved with the cold, and I'm fit to die. I'm so hungry. For God's sake, let me come in.' "'Yes,' said Hiram. "'I'll let you come in. But why don't you go home?' The poor girl was shivering and chattering with the cold. Now she began crying, wiping her eyes with the corner of a blanket in which her head and shoulders were wrapped. "'I have been home, Hiram,' she said. "'But, Dad, he shut the door in my face.' He cursed me just awful, High. I wish I was dead. You better come in, said Hiram. It's no good standing out there in the cold. He stood aside, and the girl entered, swiftly, gratefully. At Hiram's bidding, Black Dinah presently set some food before Sally, and she fell to eating ravenously, almost ferociously. Meantime, while she ate, Hiram stood with his back to the fire, looking at her face, that face once so round and rosy, now thin, pinched, haggard. "'Are you sick, Sally?' said he presently. "'No,' said she. "'But I've had pretty hard times since I left home, High.' The tears sprang to her eyes at the recollection of her troubles, but she only wiped them hastily away with the back of her hand, without stopping in her eating. A long pause of dead silence followed. Dinah sat crouched together on a cricket on the other side of the hearth, listening with interest. Hiram did not seem to see her. "'Did you go off with Levi?' said he at last, speaking abruptly. The girl looked up furtively under her brows. "'You needn't be afeard to tell,' he added. "'Yes,' said she at last. "'I did go off with him, High. "'Where have you been?' At the question she suddenly laid down her knife and fork. "'Don't you ask that. "'Don't you ask me that, High,' she said agitatedly. "'I can't tell you that. "'You don't know Levi, Hiram. "'I daren't tell you anything he don't want me to.' If I told you where I'd been, he'd hunt me out, no matter where I was, and kill me. If you only knew what I know about him, Hiram, you wouldn't ask anything about him. Hiram stood looking brutally at her for a long time. Then at last he spoke again. I thought a sight of you once, Sally, said he. Sally did not answer immediately, but after a while she suddenly looked up. Hiram, said she, if I tell ye something, will you promise on your oath not to breathe a word to any living soul? Hiram nodded. Then I'll tell you, but if Levi finds I've told you, he'll murder me as sure as you're standing there. Come nigher, I've got to whisper it. He leaned forward close to her where she sat. She looked swiftly from right to left, then raising her lips, she breathed into his ear. I'm an honest woman, High. I was married to Levi West before I run away. End of section 13